What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio. And this is episode number 114.5. Hey, I'm your host, Dr. Yami. I'm a board-certified pediatrician, certified health and wellness coach, author, and speaker. I'm also a passionate promoter of the power of diet and lifestyle in preventing and reversing chronic disease and bringing joy and longevity into our lives. This podcast is focused on plant-based nutrition, habit formation, motivation, and mindset so that you can have the tools to live the best life possible. Are you ready to get started? Let's do this. It's just one crisis headline after another. And I want parents to know that they they can do this, that at this point, though we don't know everything, there's a lot of uncertainty. We know enough that we can make the right decisions for our family. Well, hello, veggie lovers. This month, has been crazy. This is a bonus bonus episode that I am sneaking in within the pediatric series because it is so timely and relevant to what everybody is experiencing right now. Should I send my kids back to school? Can I tolerate homeschooling? What about my parents? What about the kids' grandparents? What about newborns? What if I'm pregnant? Oh my goodness, so many questions. I know all of my patients' parents are asking me questions almost daily. And guess what? There is no right or wrong answer here. And unfortunately, it is not clear cut. However, The good news is I have a brilliant, compassionate, warm, empathetic, lovely pediatrician. Her name is Dr. Kelly Fraden, who is going to help you navigate the complexity of this situation that we are facing in the world right now. She has released a book called Parenting in a pandemic. It is an ebook, very affordable, very easy to read, and it's going to help you. So if you are losing sleep, if you're pulling your hair out right now, and you're just like, I don't even know what to do, and it's so confusing, 
Get a copy of the book after you listen to this episode. I think this episode's going to help clear up a lot of questions. Then get the book. Read through it. Read the sections that you think are really relevant to what kind of decisions you need to make. And just remember, you're in charge. So be empowered to make the best decision for you and your family, but also know that it's a moving target, okay? This is a dynamic situation. We're still learning things about this virus every day. So be flexible. Don't put your expectations too high for yourself or your family, your kids. Know that everybody's going to be okay. Kids are resilient, just like Dr. Freyden said. But we need to take care of ourselves. We need to take care of each other and try to enjoy the moment as much as we can. Speaking of enjoying the moment, I am recording this in a rush right before I leave for a five-day off-the-grid camping trip. We're not going to have cell phone reception. It's going to be the first time that I am not on call in over 14 months. I own my own practice and I love owning my own beautiful, small pediatric micro practice. I know my families very well. They know me very well. They have my cell phone number. We also use a secure texting app and I'm in touch with them all the time, which is wonderful. But with the pandemic, my coping mechanism is doing more things. So I have been really just diving deep into podcasting and learning about course creation and all the things in addition to running my practice. And guess what? I'm feeling a little burned out. So my (laughs) compassion and empathy meter was telling me that I need a break. So thankfully, we have a place to get away to. And thankfully, I have a lovely provider who is going to be covering my phones for five days. And you know, it's really, really hard for me. I know that this sounds like totally first world problems, but it is hard for me to disconnect. Like I want to so badly disconnect, but I'm always thinking of like, oh, I need to do this one thing. Oh, I I need to finish this course. I need to write this email. I need to do this thing. And it's exciting for me. I love it. I love doing the work I do. I really have so much passion and it excites me and it's stimulating. But as I'm packing for this trip, I'm not going to take my computer, which is like the first time I'm not taking my computer somewhere in over a year. I think I'm going to keep my phone off the entire time. I'm disconnecting from social media. I am only going to take books like in hard copy, because I use, you know, I'm a minimalist. I, I try to read my books on my Kindle as much as possible. But then you're on your phone, and it's just, I have this habit. I just go to Instagram, then I go to Facebook, then I go to my email. It's like this triad loop where I get stuck, like I'm a hamster in a wheel and I can't get off. So I know I have to just put my phone away and go just like all or nothing with it. So I'm just going to take books and I'm going to take my journal and I'm just going to let my brain be uncomfortable and not have a bunch of stuff to do and see what happens. I don't know what's going to happen. I will report back. Now, this episode is actually going to air 
after I've already returned from my trip. So if you follow me on social media, I will talk about it because I'm not going to be taking pictures for social media because I don't even want to have my phone on. So I'll just have to tell my story after I get back. Uh, you guys won't even know that I left because there's things that I can schedule my posts and all of that. And I also have an assistant that helps me out. She'll be holding down the virtual fort and my lovely office manager will be holding down the fort at the office and my friend that covers my calls will be helping with all of that. So that is my story. Hopefully it doesn't sound like I'm being a bit whiny, but I'm going to do this and I'm excited to get five days off, rest my brain and come back refreshed with more love and openness in my heart. But let's talk about Dr. Frayden because I know you guys are just going to love this episode. She is amazing. So Dr. Kelly Frayden is a board certified pediatrician, writer, and public health advocate. She is originally from North Carolina, but she attended Harvard and Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons before completing her pediatric residency at Children's Hospital at Montfiore. She spent several years as an assistant professor specializing in academic complex care and helping the families care for children with complex medical needs. Now she works in a public health capacity, advocating for students with chronic health conditions in New York City schools. Dr. Frayden shares evidence-based parenting advice and education about children's health on Instagram, and her advice has been featured by many publications, including Business Insider, Glamour, Pop Sugar, Baby List, and Kevin MD. And that's how I came to know her. I actually was featured in one of the articles, which I don't even know where it was. But anyway, we were listed together and I got to know her. Her handle on Instagram is advice I give my friends. Advice I give my friends. All together, no spaces or anything. So look her up. She's just so down to earth, but really smart and balanced. So I think that you'll really appreciate learning from her. And you're really going to like this episode because we break it down and talk to you about how to make these decisions. We cannot tell you what decision to make, okay? That's the, that's the struggle there. We can't tell you what to do, but we can help you think about how to make these decisions. We're also going to tell you about multi-system inflammatory syndrome in children is how much of a risk is it? Who is most at risk when it comes to children? What about pregnancy? What about newborn babies? And what should we do about the grandparents? So we're going to go through all of that. I'm going to talk about antibody testing. And then we're going to talk about Dr. Frayden's own journey. What inspired her to become a physician? Such a heartwarming story. And what she's been dealing with, with her own family. So thank you so much for listening to all these episodes that I have this month. I really hope you've been enjoying it. I hope that they have been useful for you, that you've been able to apply some of the knowledge, helping your baby and your toddler sleep, the nutrition, how do you integrate more whole plant foods into your child's diet? How do you reduce stress and manage stress? This is all so relevant right now as we think about going back to school, whether it's in person or virtually. 
So veggie lovers, thank you so much for being here. I appreciate you so much. And now on to this fabulous episode. Dr. Kelly Fraden, thank you so much for joining me on Veggie Doctor Radio today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to chat with you. Yeah, well, this is going to be fun. You recently wrote a book, Parenting in a Pandemic, and I was very excited to read it. I think it's a very well-written book, and it's going to help so many parents during these very trying times. But tell me, why did you write this book? So, uh, you know, as a school health physician, I was not working this summer and I was separated from my patients and just really worried about them. I've been so panicked about what families are going through, all the stress and uncertainty. So I felt like I had to do something to try to help. You know, I was reading all the information for my own family and for my job this fall and thinking that I could do some good with all this work. Um, so, so I put it together. Yeah, no, I'm glad you did because it's a much needed resource and there's nothing else like it available right now. What message do you want to convey the most to parents right now in the midst of this global pandemic? So I I feel like so many parents are ping-ponging with with the messages we're getting from the traditional media, you know, like the newspapers. It's just one crisis headline after another. And I want parents to know that they they can do this, that at this point, though we don't know everything, there's a lot of uncertainty. We know enough that we can make the right decisions for our family. You know, we can give you the information. We can give you some tools and strategies. And then hopefully at the end, you'll have the confidence to, to lead your family through this difficult time. Yeah, definitely. I, I love that. And as I was reading your book, I realized that there's, I mean, I'm just going to say this because I'm a pediatrician too, but there's something really special about pediatricians, you know, like just because we have like so much practice in reassuring families, right? I mean, like I always say that that's my number one job description is reassuring families because most of the time we get to reassure, which is a nice part of pediatrics. But it is like you were saying in your book, it's, it's almost like an informed consent process. Like you inform families, you help guide families, but really it's the parents that are going to be making these decisions. And I love how you are empowering parents, giving them information, but also helping them to build that confidence. And wow, the skills that we have developed during all of this, that we haven't had the opportunity to develop until now, you know, like imagine when we come out of this and life goes back to maybe a, a new normal, we're going to have some major skills that we've developed, aren't we? Absolutely. I mean, I think our, our communication skills with our family and loved ones, we've never had to navigate such life and death level decisions with loved ones who have different belief systems. And, and that skill alone should come in really handy in the years to come over more routine decisions and choices we make with our families. I also think that um, another major takeaway we'll have is is that we've learned to, to take things a little slower. So many families are, are overscheduled in general, myself included. I mean, in Manhattan, so many people go from school to sports or chess or music or whatever it is, and we jam all these things in, and we've all been forced to slow down during this time. 
and spend more time with our family. And hopefully we've learned to enjoy that and, and, and find some mindfulness and peace through those, those moments. Yeah, absolutely. And practice acceptance, which I think as Americans, we, one of the, I guess, great things about the culture in in this country is that we're go-getters. We know what we want, we go for it, and we're going to get it, you know? But right now, we're in a situation where a lot of things are out of con- out of our control. Like, we don't have control over it, and it seems really big. But practicing that acceptance and that mindfulness of, you know, knowing that, you know, sometimes you're in these kinds of situations, and you just can control what you can control and let the rest be. Well, what do you worry the most? You know, I know that you've had lots of different roles as a pediatrician. Right now, you are focused on school health. But when it comes to children and the pandemic, what's your biggest worry? You know, to be honest, I'm far more worried about the parents than the children during this time. Mm-hmm. I, I, I worry that when parents are unsettled and stressed, that, that, that trickles down to their family. You know, we can't be the intentional, conscious parents we want to be when we're we're in distress. So, so I think that that's that's my number one worry. And then when it comes to the children, luckily they've been spared from the worst of the virus's direct effects. So, I think as pediatricians, we have to worry about the secondary impact of the vac- of the virus on our children. You know the the lack of a routine, the lack of opportunities to exercise and see friends, the the lack of social supports as it impacts mental health. Yeah, yeah, for Those sure. Are- no. Yeah, and I agree with you because I feel like parents really have been very strained, not just the fact that they're worrying day in and day out, but they're having to manage so many things at once when usually they have help. I mean, I think that, I've always kind of taken school and teachers for granted, you know, like I just thought it's something that would always be there. And so being in a kind of situation where you're like, wow, teachers do so much and thank goodness for teachers and the kind of skill that they have to be able to teach a full classroom of students. I mean, wow, that's super admirable. <laughs> yes, it, it's amazing how skilled they are. I think we all have more of an appreciation for them. And and it's good for us to acknowledge that we we built our lives around the the plan of sending our children to school. And that was a good plan. It's not like we made a mistake. We thought yeah. we could count on these institutions to help us as parents. And now we're we're just a little bit adrift as we figure yeah. out our new normal. Yes. Well, one of the things that you talk about in your book, which I love because I haven't ever seen anybody put it this way, but it is levels of overall exposure from zero to four. Zero being like you are at home, you don't leave just with your nuclear family all the way up to four, which is like basically you're not taking any precautions and you're just exposing yourself all over the place. So can you talk to me more about how you develop this and how you see it kind of helping us with our decision-making? Right. You know, so one thing I've heard from parents over and over again is that it's, it's too many decisions, you know, to think about every one of our actions, you might do a hundred things in a day. And now you have to think about whether you're going to do this with a mask or without, or how you're going to sanitize your hands and this, 
this and that. So the idea behind providing an overall level of exposure is that you put your your choices into a category. So doctors, when we we make a diagnosis, we follow algorithms often. You know, if, if you have these three symptoms, we think about strep throat. And that helps us from having to recreate the decision wheel every time we do something. So I think if parents can have kind of algorithms or plans for how they approach coronavirus-associated decisions, it can make it easier. So you might say that, you know, my family is 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 low risk if we get sick and we're we want to make sure that we're considerate of our community and respectful that we're not making things worse for other people so maybe we'll tolerate like a level three and send our kids to school and and if we get sick it'll probably be okay but then you might say okay now the incidence in my community is going up and I'm uncomfortable with that. So I think our family has to change our level down, down to a two. Or we're going to see the grandparents for Thanksgiving. And we've got to go to a zero for two weeks before that to make it safe mm-hmm. for them. Mm-hmm. And I think having kind of a shorthand within your family can make it easier for um, you to communicate expectations, particularly if you have you know, your, your co-parent or um, teenage children in your household who you're trying to mm-hmm. wrangle. <laughs> yeah, that becomes a little trickier. No, I love that because it it is, wow, I, I could just see how it can make it so much simpler for communication and it just objectifies it. Like you don't have to be like, well, how exposed am I? It's like, no, we're, we're at a level three, you know, we're going to school, we're going to work, we're doing all these things or no, we really want to keep it level zero because we're about to have a baby or something, you know, I think that this is something that we could really implement not just with our families, but with our friends and, and other people that we're making decisions with. So that's great. Well, let's get into some of the, the hard talk when it comes to the coronavirus. When it comes to children, what really is the risk of death or severe complications for children? So, you know, thankfully, we've seen that the risk of death is, is very low, uh, this is about two weeks old now, but but uh, the last numbers I looked at closely estimated that about 1.8 million children in the United States had had coronavirus, and that the number of deaths at that time were were about 68. So obviously, that every every death is a tragedy, but the number of children who have died of coronavirus is is small. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of severe complications, those are obviously more frequent than deaths. Children do end up um, needing you know, to be hospitalized or in intensive care, but, um, but it's far less frequent than it is with adults. Mm-hmm. The children we worry about the most are the children who have complex chronic conditions, um, who are medically fragile and maybe have ended up in the hospital with other viruses. Like mm-hmm. if, you're, if your child is one whom ends up in the hospital every year with the flu or RSV, it, it's possible that coronavirus may, may result in a hospitalization for, for that kind of a, a child. Um, but, but we aren't seeing that children are doing um, unexpectedly worse with coronavirus. Yeah. And that's, I'm sure, very um, good news for parents. And they're probably relieved to hear that. And, you know, 
most of the parents that have the children that are at risk know it already. As you were saying, these are the children who you're already doing your best to protect them against the flu and these kinds of viruses that could be a little bit harsher to them. So hopefully that's one of those kinds of families where they will take this into consideration and they can make changes in their life to try to protect their children. One thing that was really interesting that you wrote about in your book was about the hospital in New York, that the, the pediatric hospital in New York, where they actually had to convert the part of the pediatric hospital for adults, which I was like, whoa, I didn't know that. I never heard about that. So that's kind of cool. And that that's a sign that there were so few children that needed to be admitted for that time that they were able to use some of that space for adults. Yes. I I was enormously reassured. It was, you know, in April in New York, we were just absolutely slammed with coronavirus. Um, And it was really scary. And we didn't know at that point how it was going to affect uh, children. But just seeing that the children's hospital normally runs on five floors, was able to run on basically one and a half floors and allow adults everywhere else you know, that was enormously reassuring. Some of that is related to the fact that they weren't doing elective surgeries, you know, things got delayed, but, but there was not a surge of, of children being sick that overwhelmed the hospital. Although there were certainly sick children in the community with coronavirus, because they, the, there were so many sick adults at that time. Yeah. Well, you know, what's funny is having, being a pediatrician, having trained at a tertiary care center, that's like this amazingly beautiful pediatric hospital that's all colorful. You know how peds hospitals are. They're just so fun. And I was just thinking that what a treat it was if you have to be admitted as an adult to be admitted to a peds hospital because it's way more fun than an adult hospital. Hopefully those people don't ever have to be admitted again because they're going to be super disappointed when they get admitted to an adult hospital and they're like, everything's gray. Why are there no like colorful rainbows and stuff everywhere? You know? So I think all hospitals should look like pediatric hospitals, but that's just me. All right. So let's talk about multi-system inflammatory syndrome, which I always have to like write this out because I cannot remember those words for whatever reason. I cannot remember them. So tell me real quick, let's talk about what it is and who's at risk for this? Because once we started hearing about this, of course, it was super scary to a lot of parents, but it seems like the risk is not as high as we thought at the beginning. Yes. Uh, you know, I have to say, when I first heard the reports from the United Kingdom about about these patients coming in, I really thought it was just Kawasaki's disease, which is, you know, a well-known uh, pediatric condition, which tends to be or is likely triggered by a virus and causes a constellation of inflammation in different body systems. So, you know, what we're seeing with coronavirus with MISC is very similar to that. Um, You can't miss it. The children are quite sick. Um, They typically have high fever. Um, They may be uh, dizzy or have low blood pressure, uh, racing heart, uh, they may have GI symptoms like like vomiting or or stomach pain. Uh, they may have a rash or red eyes or or red mucous membranes like their mouth and tongue. Um, so it can look like a lot of different things. 
But I, I think it's important for parents to know that, that that they're not going to miss it. And if they get prompt medical care, um, that their children it, can have access to treatments, which seem to be quite effective. Um, so we don't know over the next two years how these children are going to do, but we do know that most of the children who have this are able to leave the hospital in six days and and leave at their usual state of functioning. Yeah, that's exactly what I've been telling parents is it's not subtle, you know, because of course kids are getting other viruses right now. And so I have been seeing roseola and some things and kids are getting a rash and parents are calling me like, oh my God, it's him. And I'm like, they're smiling and happy. It's not that, I promise. <laughs> so, right. so yeah, it's not a subtle thing. Like your child is going to be very sick if they have this, but we are seeing that children are mostly recovering from this. And it seems to be affecting the school age children more, right? Kind of like the middle age range. Yes. Yes. It's, it, I think like 8.9, I think was the average age. So that like five to 14 year old range is the most likely. And, you know, sometimes the kids, they didn't necessarily have symptoms of coronavirus. Maybe they had an exposure, but it, it's thought to be about four weeks after, um, after that, that it, it pops up. So, it, you know, I think it's just important because obviously parts of the country where you're surging now, you may see some of these cases coming. Um, however, it does seem to be really rare. Um, so, so it's not something I would worry about too much, but you know, all the pediatricians out there, we, we shouldn't be surprised when we do see a couple of cases. Yeah. And just be one of those things that you keep in the back of your mind in case your child suddenly becomes very ill, just seek care, you know, just call your pediatrician, go to the ER if you need to, and just make sure that you're being aware that this is a possibility, even if it's very rare. All right. So I think what's on every parent's mind right now is, is there a straightforward answer to the question, should my child go back to school or daycare? Can you just give us an easy answer, Dr. Freyden? I wish I could. I wish there was like one one size fits all answer, but there's just not, as you know. Um, you know, we really, ha you really have to make the decision for yourself as as your family. You know your family best as the parent. You know your family. You know your community. You know your school. So you're the only one that can be in the position to make the decision. Hey, humans. I know you want to eat healthier, but feel strapped for time. And even the thought of meal planning and cooking stresses you out. Well, have you considered trying a meal kit service? Green Chef is the number one meal kit for eating well, delivering pre-portioned and prepped quality whole foods with limited processed ingredients. Green Chef sends organic, fresh produce, and chef-designed recipes in every box for satisfying, nourishing, and convenient meals that make it easy to stick to a healthy living routine. Find recipes for every lifestyle, including plant-based diets. Green Chef delivers quality whole foods with limited processed ingredients, including low added sugar and sodium smart options. You get to choose from 80 plus flavor packed options that allow you to take back time in your kitchen with dinner ready in 30 minutes and lunch in 10. Try 15 plus new recipes every week. But here's the best part. Green Chef delivers everything you need to make convenient, wholesome, and delicious meals directly to your doorstep. Each meal kit includes pre-measured ingredients, as well as some produce that comes already pre-chopped and 
custom sauces that are pre-made in-house. They also provide the recipe cards, and the meals are really simple to make. It's a delicious, fresh, home-cooked meal without the hassle. What I love the most about Green Chef is that it takes the stress out of cooking. The recipes are easy to follow and everything you need is included, so even the less experienced cooks in your house can make a delicious home-cooked meal. It's perfect for those seasons in your life that you're really busy with your kids' sports and school events. Hello, spring! And time is limited, especially if you want fresh, home-cooked, healthy meals to put on the table. So if you're feeling frustrated by the lack of time to eat healthy and you are ready to try Green Chef and see how easily you can integrate it into your healthy lifestyle, go to greenchef.com forward slash I am human five zero and use code I am human five zero to get 50% off plus 20% off your next two months. That's greenchef.com forward slash I am human five zero and use the code I am human five zero to get 50% off plus 20% off your next two months. Green Chef, the number one meal kit for eating well. Equilibria is a woman-owned wellness brand with products intended to bring your mind and body back in harmony. They consider themselves a by women and for women company, and they now offer a nutrient-dense green powder called Daily Nutrigreens. Myself and my staff here at Nourish Wellness all tried the Daily Nutrigreens, and we loved it. The Daily Nutrigreens contain an immune antioxidant and detox blend, along with prebiotics, probiotics, and over 35 fruits and veggies. It also contains other important nutrients, such as B12, iron, iron, zinc, and selenium. The daily greens are certified organic and all you have to do is mix it with water, but you can also easily add to your smoothies, your oatmeal, or your baked goods. The daily Nutri-Greens are vegan, gluten-free, and non-GMO. And another bonus is that the packaging is compostable. Yay! When I tried the apple banana daily Nutri-Greens, I was surprised by the pleasant and mild flavor. It was easy to prepare and drink and didn't leave any aftertaste. And I felt great afterwards. It's really easy to create a daily ritual around your green drink, integrated into your daily self-care routine. A green powder is one way to fill the gap in daily nutrition and is an easy and convenient way to get in your greens. These powders are a great way to add more nutrients into your diet during busy times, travel, and transitions in life when you don't have time or access to fresh green veggies. If you're interested in trying Equilibria's daily Nutrigreens, head to myeq.com and use code Dr. Yami, that's D-R-Y-A-M-I, for 15% off Equilibria's daily Nutrigreens and much more. That's myeq.com and use code Dr. Yami, D-R-Y-A-M-I, at checkout for 15% off site-wide today. And what are the kind of big factors that we should consider when we are making this decision of whether we should send them back? Right. So you want to reflect on on your family if anyone is high risk. Um, So if there are people with underlying health conditions, newborns, grandparents uh, in your your pod or in your family circle, you need to think... um, any any school or daycare, even the best precautions, may still carry some risk of, of getting an infection. So you have to decide if you can tolerate a small risk of infection. You know, then you also have to think about your goals and your priorities, like what's really important for the children in your family. Some children um, thrived with remote learning, like 
I, I, I've heard from a lot of families who were pleasantly surprised to see that maybe with less distractions, their children could focus better. And if that's the case, maybe maybe you end up doing the virtual option just because it was a better fit. But, um, you know, other families, we may have to prioritize getting the parents to be able to go to work sometimes and having the childcare. And I know that parents sometimes can feel guilty about that. But in, in the long run, what's important um, to your family, you know, you, your family needs to have a roof over its head and, and food on the table. And sometimes we have to make those decisions too. Yeah, absolutely. No, I love that because it's true. Here, we're slowly starting to open up. And I've heard from parents that they're being asked to go back to work in a month or two. And so the question is, oh, I don't know how's my baby going to be if I send them to daycare. So exactly what you're saying is there's no right or wrong. It's going to be what kind of risk you are willing to accept and how much risk there is in the house and how it's going to work. If, if you're not able to stay home with a child, but they're really low risk, then it may be worth trying it out and seeing how it goes. And also keeping an open mind, knowing that we don't know what the fall is going to look like. So we could try whatever system, but things may change depending on if we have bigger surges in different parts of the country. So we are going to be playing it a little bit by ear anyway, you know? It's true. So let's talk specifically about babies because the pandemic has not stopped moms from giving birth. I've had like a million newborns in my practice. <laughs> so lots of babies and lots of pregnant mamas walking around, sadly, in this very hot August sun. They're making it though. So what advice do you have for parents that are pregnant welcoming new babies soon? You know, I, I have to say, I worry a lot about these parents because having a baby is a stressful time. It's a good stress, but it also is a time when with your hormones and your sleep deprivation and the, the enormous change in your life, there could be a lot of anxiety and depression, even when there's not a pandemic. So, so I really have been worried about these parents. I think um, the... The bottom line is that if you have a newborn at home, I, I would treat it like it's a bad flu season. So as a pediatrician, I might have carried more respect for the flu than others in our community <laughs> because, you know, we know just how bad every flu and RSV season, you know, November to April, newborn babies get these respiratory viruses and end up in the hospital, like 60,000 of them a year. Like it's a big deal. So I'm not being dismissive at all when I say to treat it like a flu season. For the first two months of life, we like to protect newborns as much as possible from getting sick. I think, um, you know, limiting unnecessary visitors, uh, not taking the baby to crowded areas like on an airplane or to a, to a, a church service or, or a big gathering like that would be sort of the basic advice. I think a lot of parents get stuck though when it's their second or third child and they and they're confused about how other people in the family can or can't go about their lives. That yeah. is a challenging one. So for those families, what what I've been saying is that you know, you have to think honestly about your needs because you as the parent really matter. And if you a lot of people can't deal with a newborn and keep a young uh, child entertained and engaged and learning 
and maintain that maintain their sanity. You know, if you need to send your older child um, to school or daycare for your well-being, I think that's a valid reason. And it may even end up being a safety reason if yes. you're overtired and you're driving or you're going to maybe going to fall asleep and drop the baby. You know, I mean, it's, it's important to be honest about like what your needs are because there's no shame in asking for help. Um, so I think there's that. And so then, it's, then you're in the, just, you're in the situation of your older child may be exposed, but you want to limit your newborn's exposure to, to coronavirus. So how can you distance <laughs> within your household? And that, that is a big challenge. Mm. I, I think there's one, um, basic precaution I've been recommending is, is to consider not sharing a room. Um, if one child is going to, um, to school and the other is a newborn, if you can't keep them in separate sleeping environments, it may be better because if you think about it, that's just a block of time, you know, hopefully 10 to 12 hours when they're breathing the same air. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and even if they're not next to each other, it's just maybe a way to decrease the volume of exposure. Then the other, you know, common sense precautions, washing hands when you come home from school, um, encouraging the baby to uh, the older sibling to play with the feet and not get in the baby's face. You may even have the older child mask if they want to hold the baby um, because all of our kids are getting much better at masking. Mm -hmm. So it shouldn't be that big of a deal to put on a mask. And I, I would say the same thing for those visitors. Many people want the grandparents or people that are really important them to them to come and meet the baby. Of course, this is like your support system. So when you're choosing to allow that contact, you have an opportunity to make it as safe as possible or mitigate the risk. You know, grandparents might not be able to lock down like you are, but you can ask them to to wash your hands and 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 wear a mask or potentially throw something over their clothes if they've been out at the grocery store. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Great. All of those are really awesome tips. And that kind of goes into the next question I had, which is probably the next most common question I get asked. And should children be allowed to mingle back with the grandparents? You know, we've started kind of relaxing some of the social distancing, but now children are going to be exposed to another level potentially if they go back to school. How do we go about making that decision of letting them hang out with people that are older and are at higher risk for the COVID infection? It, you know, it's a really difficult decision. And, and part of why it's so difficult is because so many of the older people in our lives, you know, they don't want to be separated from their grandchildren who they love. And, and it's hard because as parents, you know, we don't want, we don't want to take unnecessary risk with, with our grandparents who we love, you know, we don't want to see them get this because it is so serious mm -hmm. for, for older people in our community. You know, the risk just goes from like three to 18% as you go above 60, it really rockets up. And, and so in short, in an ideal situation, once your kids are back at school, you don't want them to see the grandparents without some distance or some masking involved. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so I think as you're considering, if you're still considering making the remote verse in-person decision, if it's important that you're regularly seeing grandparents, you may want to err on the side of caution and go remote. 
it's just so hard to know once you're out there if you could be an asymptomatic carrier because uh, we know so yes. many children with coronavirus can be. And the tests aren't perfect either. The tests are a snapshot in time. So if you've been exposed mm -hmm. in the last five days, um, you know, your test may not show that you're positive yet, even if you're going to pursue that strategy. So the only way to really know that you're not an asymptomatic carrier is to wait. And that that's hard. So it's one thing if you're going, if your family doesn't live near you, that's the position that my family's in that, you know, we can plan ahead. So if the grandparents are coming to visit or we're going to travel for a holiday or something, we can, we can make a plan to change our behavior or potentially even pull our kids out of school for a while before seeing the grandparents. Mm -hmm. But not everybody's in that kind of situation. Yeah. So yeah, definitely some factors to consider. But basically what you're saying is there's no right or wrong and every family is going to have to decide for themselves what's within their comfort level but also respect the wishes of the grandparents because there's some grandparents are pretty, pretty bold grandparents. And they're like, I don't care. You can't, can't take me away from my grandkids. <laughs> yeah. My, my parents got, they got trapped in Panama. So they snowbird to Panama and they were supposed to come back April the 1st and it, it locked down crazy there. Like they couldn't even go from one city to another. Like there was like patrol monitoring. You couldn't like leave wow. your town. So, um, so they're, they're probably going to be there for a while. I don't think they're going to make it this year, but maybe next year. So it's been hard though, because we're used to having them, they live with us half of the year. So we're used mm -hmm. to having them around during this time of the year. So it's been a little bit sad for us. So I know how some families are struggling, especially if you've had a newborn. I mean, that's the time when you, you need the support. You want your mom and dad around to help with the new baby, but also to entertain the older kids as well. So they are such a great resource, those grandparents. We love them. But I just, you know, I want to chime in there that it's um, it's not all black and white, you know, so so for every one of these decisions, and it's part of what makes it so challenging is that it's not just yes or no. It's um, yes, but outside or yes, but masked. So there's so many permutations, you know, whether whether you continue to see the grandparents and require your children to mask or preferentially try to see them outside or do things with them that you can do with a little distance like hiking or bike riding um there it's not just as simple always as yeah. yes or no so hopefully people can find uh paths forward that meet everybody's needs absolutely the right balance for everybody i love that all right so a little controversial question your way which i've also heard this around here as well but should families be having coronavirus parties? I, it, it, it's um, so amazing to me as a pediatrician, the spectrum of people's choices, because I have so many people in New York uh, where they're terrified of getting coronavirus because they, they, you know, it's hit really close to home for a lot of people here. And then in other parts of the world, people are, are thinking that it's a good idea to have coronavirus parties. So I don't think it's a good idea for several reasons. Um, although children are lower risk um, for serious complications, it's not zero risk. And the, the issue is what's the benefit of taking that risk? So we don't know that if your child gets coronavirus, 
that they'll have a durable uh, immune response, which will prevent infection down the line. We don't know that. So I know people used to do chickenpox parties and chickenpox is a little bit different because most people who have chickenpox, you know, develop symptoms. They're not asymptomatic and they do show a long-term response to infection that is protective. But we don't know that with coronavirus. In fact, we have some evidence that it's not the case. So why take even a small risk if there's if there's not a definite benefit? Then the other reason not to do it is because you don't want to pose a risk to your community. So even if your bubble is low risk and you all get sick and it's not a big deal, you may have to go to the grocery store or the pharmacy or something may come up and you may need to see a doctor. And then you may expose all of those people who you interact with in those in those situations. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and we've shown that people who do get coronavirus can, we say 14 days, but there are some people who shed it for 20, 30 days mm-hmm. after a shed virus that could potentially infect others. So if you, um, if you get sick, you may pose a risk to others for a long time. And that risk matters too, even if, if it's not your family, it still matters. Yeah, well, that's a lovely explanation. I mean, do you, how do you feel about chicken pox parties? I mean, it's hard. It would be really hard to have a chicken pox party now anyway, but how do you feel about that? I'm just curious. You know, it's interesting. Uh, I haven't ever ever really had to think about it. We have a pretty um, high vaccination rate in my area. Um, I, I worry about people taking the chicken pox less seriously because there there are there are still people who can have serious complications from chicken pox. Unfortunately mm-hmm. I had a I had a a pregnant mom uh who almost died of chicken pox. Yeah. Uh and she was a, a a you know like a healthy n- normal woman with no underlying conditions. But chicken pox in pregnant women can be quite serious and it infected her lungs and she was in the ICU on a ventilator mm-hmm. while she was pregnant and, and they just came out of nowhere. And so a lot of these a lot of these viruses have have relatively rare, although very serious complications that just make it make them worth respecting. Absolutely. No, that's how I feel. I you know, I definitely have a little subset of families that do alternative vaccines and choose not to vaccinate their families, but there have been parents that ask me, you know, they're they're wanting to expose their child the natural way, but with nature, you also have to accept complications, you know, even though like you were saying, it's lower. We both know as pediatricians, children that have had adverse complications from chicken pox. So it's one of those things that as a mom, I don't think I would purposely infect my child knowing that there could be risk of serious things happening. So yeah, so that's interesting, interesting uh, topic there. Mm-hmm. How do you feel about antibody testing? You know, uh, so antibody testing is an interesting tool, but I think it has a lot of limitations to it. And and that's why I went into a fair amount of detail about antibodies in the book, because I think it's so much in the media right now that understanding that the way our body generates uh, immune protection, understanding antibodies is important to be able to understand what's going on. 
with mm-hmm. coronavirus because we know that um, antibodies take time to generate after infection, and they sometimes don't don't last. Um, we have to be careful about how we use and interpret antibody testing. So you know, in New York, we we didn't have the the capacity to get tested when when we had the bulk of our infections testing um, for active infection, the PCR nasal swab testing was reserved for people sick enough to go to the hospital. Yeah. And that was really for the first two or three months. So a lot of people had um, had exposure and potentially symptoms, at, you know, that w- it's possible that they had coronavirus, but they weren't sick enough to receive testing at the time. Mm-hmm. So for those people, they, they ask, like, should I get antibody testing? And it, it's, it would be nice to know if they had had it or not, because it, it does potentially change how vulnerable they are to getting infected again. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily give you a, a complete answer or give you an answer that will enable you to change your behavior. Right. Because say you did have it and you have antibodies today, it doesn't tell you if you'll have antibodies tomorrow. And we don't know um, with enough certainty what is the number of antibodies you need to prevent you from getting sick again. And with some of these immune complications we've seen, like the multi-system inflammatory syndrome, you know, sometimes we don't know if if there may be a, a second infection could cause complications. So I wouldn't want you to take your antibody testing and and feel like you could behave you know, willy-nilly and have no worries. So that just makes it tricky to interpret. But luckily, when you're having antibody testing, hopefully you're doing it with the guidance of a healthcare provider who can help you understand and interpret what the results mean for you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's exactly what I feel too, is just being cautious about it giving you a false sense of security and then either getting reinfected and spreading it or these kinds of things. So yeah, it's very interesting kind of things that we're having to think about. What surprised you the most about this coronavirus pandemic? You know, uh, I I think one of the things that's been the hardest for me is how other countries have managed to get this under control in a way that the United States hasn't. I can't say I'm, I shouldn't be surprised by this because I knew that there were parts of our healthcare system that weren't really ready uh, to fight in a coordinated manner, a threat of this nature, but it's been surprising to watch so many other countries fight coronavirus and get it under control before us. Yeah. Yeah. It's one of those things that you don't really experience until you go through it. And then you're just like, okay, this is how it's going to play out for us. You know? Yeah. What do you think has been the best thing that's come out of this whole experience for you and your family? I think uh, one of the funnest things for me as a mom has been watching my children. You know, I have a a two-year-old girl and a six-year-old boy watching their uh, relationship really bloom during this time. They've had they had months of being each other's only playmate, and and luckily for us, it worked out well that that they found ways to connect with each other, and maybe that they wouldn't have otherwise. Yes. You know, normally they have 
other peers around to distract them, but they really had time to to enrich their relationship. So that's been one thing. And the other best thing was that we've we've taken up hiking. Um, I'm not sure I would have powered through at convincing them to go if it weren't for the lack of other opportunities to get out of the house. So I, I really enjoy, you know, getting time in nature and and getting exercise and it, and so being able to convince the rest of my family to go with me has been a real nice thing for me. Oh, that's so lovely. I love that. I have two sons and they're about four and a half years apart and they're each other's best buds. So I just love hearing that, that this has brought your kids together. But also, yeah, you're right. Whenever you can tell your kids, hey, this is like literally the only opportunity we have to get out of the house. So you take it or leave it. You're going to come hiking with me or nothing. So <laughs> gives you a whole new appreciation for hiking, right? <laughs> yes, absolutely. It was especially, especially when we were really locked down in here and it was kind of be weather outside. It was like a little too cold yeah. to really enjoy being outside. I was able to convince my family to get out there with me. <laughs> wow. That's awesome. Congratulations on that. What do you wish more parents knew? You know, I, I feel like most parents, the response to this pandemic has been just such worry and panic. And what uh, sometimes when you first talk to a parent about it, it's they're worried about their kids. And and I think parents should really understand that children are so resilient and, and they overcome such setbacks all the time. You know, in children's hospitals, we see, we see you know, actually, my mom tells this story because I, as I mentioned in the book, I, I had cancer when I was little. Mm -hmm. And when my parents sat me down and I was three and they told me I had cancer, they were obviously really worried and crying and stressed. And I could tell that something was wrong. But yeah. at the end of the talk, my, my only question was, but, but can I still play? You know, <laughs> I was like, because that's what matters at the end of the day to a child is like, can I still play? Like, you know, sometimes when, when parents see their children being stressed at, at one point during the pandemic lockdown, because um, we were quarantined away from our primary home, um, my son was really stressed. And we were like, what is bothering you? And it was like uh, this specific toy or book he had left behind. And it was not the kind of thing. You know, it wasn't now his school is on Zoom or he hasn't seen any children in person in two months. It was this one little toy. And so sometimes I think we worry more than we need to about our children, that they they are incredible. They will surprise you with that, how they can overcome stresses. Yes. Oh, I love that so much. But it's true, especially little kids, like the little ones, they really do live in the present. Mm -hmm. Like- unless you're just constantly being like, oh, we're dying in a pandemic. Like they go back to like, okay, I want to play. Let's go do hide and seek. What are we going to do today? I just love that story about you. Like your parents are so overwhelmed and stressed and you're like, but I mean, like, what's the problem? I'm still going to be able to play, right? If I can play, I'm good. <laughs> I don't see the problem here. <laughs> so <laughs> that's so adorable. And I'm, I'm so glad you made it and that you're here <laughs> with me today doing this interview. Well, now I want to do a little, a lighthearted uh, question. What personal habit are you most proud of? How did you develop it? And how do you maintain it? You know, so I, I think I'm most proud of, of my exercise habits, actually. 
Uh, and that's partially because I grew up on the sedentary side, you know, mm. I, I was an only child and a bookworm and, and I, I would mostly want to spend my time curled up on the sofa doing books or video games. But over time, uh, you know, I, w- I was able to make it a priority in my life to exercise every day. And, and I think it really wasn't until the last few years that I've been able to be at a point in my career or my family life with enough support that I could like really just schedule it in and schedule time for me to take care of exercise. And it's been so good for my mental health and, and my energy and my mood, you know, exercise, um, went from being a chore to something more that like sparks joy. And so the, one of the things that's helped me maintain it has been both the scheduling it in. And when I start to get tired of it, uh, trying something new, because there are so many different ways um, to move your body. So, you know, I used to do a lot of bar classes, but you know, now I, I do more running outside and you just, just keep going one way or another. Oh, that's fantastic. And yes, I can identify with that so much. Cause I feel like exercise is one of the foundations of my day-to-day feeling of joy. You know, it just gives me that calm and that peace. And of course those endorphins, especially running, uh, running is one of my favorites. So yeah, that's, that's so fantastic that you've been able to develop that and find the way that works for you, you know, the way that really you can honor your body. That's wonderful. Thank you. Well, Dr. Freyden, you have been such a great resource. I know that parents are just going to be so pleased to listen to this interview, but also get your book so that they can get more details. And you're just so compassionate and so empowering to parents. So thank you so much for everything that you do. Thank you so much. And thanks for your support. It really means a lot from a fellow pediatrician. Yes. And before we leave, I would love to know um, how listeners can get in touch with you and how they can find you online. Right. Um, So I I am mostly on Instagram at at advice I give my friends Um, and and through Instagram or or my website, advice I give my friends dot com. You can sign up for my newsletter. Part of the challenge of writing a book about coronavirus is that we know that it's going to change. Mm-hmm. So, so I want people to stay in touch, especially if they read the book, because that way I can alert you if there's a change that really matters. Um, so uh, otherwise, I hope people will connect with me there and, and I share uh, pediatric health advice and parenting tips. Awesome. I love it. And I'm going to sign up for your newsletter too. I'm going to just use you as my source of staying up to date. So okay. I'll, I'll filter out all the fear-mongering headlines for you. That'll Perfect. be my job. I love it. Well, Dr. Frayden, thank you so much for your time. And I hope that you have a very plantastic day. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Thank you for tuning in. And I look forward to having you back again next week. A very special thank you to the band Rocket Surgeons for permission to use the broccoli song. To find out more about the Rocket Surgeons, please visit their website at rocketsurgeonsband.com or Facebook at Rocket Surgeons Music. Please subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Also, all of my social media links can be found in the podcast description. Send me a message and let me know what you think of today's podcast. 
sharing is caring. Please share, rate, and review my podcast and drop me a line if you have ideas for future episodes. Thank you once again and have a plantastic day.